Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today we have an interview with Kate Abdo of CBS Sports. We've had some great interview guests lately, including Jesse Marsh, Serginio Dest, and Arlo White, along with many others. So check those interviews out. It would be huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. We'll have Kate Abdo on soon. But let's start with some talk about the soccer world with my friend Chris Whittingham of the Chelsea Miked Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? I have not launched an immensely successful podcast series yet this week, but I'm still doing okay. (laughs) Speaking of which, uh, I want to talk, before we get to the U.S. men's national team, a little bit about the Freddie Adu podcast, American Prodigy, the Freddie Adu story that I've been working on pretty hardcore now for the last three, four months, just came out this week with Blue Wire Podcast, and I know you've had a chance to listen to the first episode of Seven, and there's going to be one episode coming out each Tuesday between now and New Year's, and I'm just curious to hear any questions, any thoughts Yeah. so far. Yeah, I, I have so many. First off, uh, my favorite bit, and I, I texted this to you, was that Ray Hudson stole the show despite not even appearing on the show. Uh, there's a quote from the D.C. United manager, uh, Kevin Payne, uh, uh, D.C. United general manager, Kevin Payne, that basically said, Ray Hudson told me about Freddie Adu. A blind man, I, I believe, on a, on, a, on a bucking horse could see his talent was the line, I believe. A blind man on a galloping horse. Oh, on a galloping see. horse, yeah. <laughs> oh, it was just, it, it, like, I heard it in his Jordy accent in my head. It was lovely. But uh, I, I kind of want I wanted to, to ask you about, because you, you mentioned in the podcast how maybe you even thought that you had, like, not a measure of culpability, but you're thinking about the media and the hype around Freddie Adu, and my overwhelming feeling about uh, so much of what happened in episode one, which takes us through his experience at IMG Academy, and then kind of the breakout moment at the Under-17 World Championships, is how early everything comes. And if you just added two years to each stop of his career, right? You go to the IMG, IMG residency at 13 instead of 11. If he, you know, excels at the under 17 World Cup at 16 instead of 14, he might have had a chance. But being a professional soccer player at 14, being a traveling circus at 14, like, did you just have like this overwhelming sense that all of it is just way too early? To me, I really noticed this because I had done our stories at Sports Illustrated on LeBron James in 2002, and then I had done our stories on Freddie in 03 and 04. So it was in a similar context, but LeBron was 17. Freddie was 13, 14. And there's a huge difference between those ages in terms of development physically, development emotionally, and how to deal with just all of the expectations and the pressure that came both their ways. And Freddie was pretty incredible in terms of sort of his charisma and how he came off publicly. But I do think, and I think he thinks in this series that he could have handled things better, but maybe the adults could have handled things better too Mm -hmm. in terms of what they set him up for in the sense of somebody signed off on Freddie and Pele being in a national TV ad campaign together in 2004, which put instantly in everyone's mind, this is how you should think of Freddie Adu with the greatest player of all time. And that, in a sense, set Freddie up to fail no matter what he did. 
Right, and like he has, you know, he's just a great, creative young player, right? I think what you describe is just an incredible technical quality on the ball that, if well honed, could have become a great player. Do you think if you dropped him into the current academy setup, right, and even like in a modern era of of, of U.S. soccer, we're going to get to the U.S. men's national team where all these young players are coming through, and so none of them really feel like a prodigy. They just feel like, oh, another great young product. We're smarter about talent development at younger ages. Academy systems are well set up. If you, if you drop him, let's say, in the D.C. United Academy in 2020, do you think that he would have he would have had a much better career? I think the chances were certainly better. Mm-hmm. You know, the infrastructure of MLS is completely different today than it was in 2004. And part of me does wonder, there was a greater, bigger infrastructure and a history of dealing with really young players in Europe than there was in MLS. And so I do wonder if Freddie had gone into the Ajax system or the Dortmund system, how it might've gone better and how he wouldn't have had to deal with all of the media and the promotion that he had in MLS. And obviously that brought him a lot of money at a very young age, but was it better for his actual development? Probably not. So I I think that's a big part of it. And American soccer, I don't think was totally ready for something like this. I noticed this when David Beckham came to the LA Galaxy and, and American soccer really wasn't ready for that either. No, no. And, and you obviously wrote a book about that as well. But the, the other thing that kind of stuck out was that there were legitimate reasons for the amount of hype that he received when you compare you know, him to other youth prospects. Can you just kind of put us there? And you do some in the podcast, but like that feeling you have of watching him at IMG Academy going, my God, this guy. And then at the under-17 championships, which you, you say in the podcast that you paid your way to go to, like, obviously you want to be there and see, all right, is this, you know, is this hype just hype or is there something behind it? Can you kind of like, when you're watching him score a hat-trick against South Korea, can you put us there and go, oh no, like th- this is legit. Like, I actually think this could happen. I mean, it was crazy. So I go to Finland in August of tw- or 2003. And at that point I wanted to do a book on Freddie. So I, you know, as I didn't want to pay to send me there, I dipped into my own pocket and went. And like, Freddie's the youngest player in the tournament. And it, it's kind of weird because Cesc Fabregas was like in the hotel. They kept all the teams in the same hotel in Finland, in this fairly small town. You know, like literally there was a ski jump above, like on the hill above <laughs> the stadium where they played this first game. And Freddie's 14. And they're playing South Korea, and he scores this wonder goal where he slaloms through guys for like 45 yards. And it's ridiculous. And ends up getting a hat trick in the first game. The U.S. wins 6-1. to one. And you feel like this is happening. Now suddenly he's become a global story. And that literally is ha- happening at the same time that Ivan Gazidis, who was negotiating for, you know, with Freddie's agent, they're sitting next to each other in the stadium yeah, no, and such like a great looking scene. at each other. It's such a great scene that you paint of like, like you can see the agent seeing dollar signs and even Gazidis is seeing dollar signs are going to be coming out of his pocket. Yeah. And <laughs> it, it's just such a crazy situation. I just remember being in the stadium that day. I was sitting next to a guy who was a scout for a Premier League team you know, a guy who is presumably good at what he does. And he's like, says to me, like, I think that 
is that player is going to be the best player in the world someday. And so it's hard not to speak to him and to other scouts and coaches at the time and, and not think this guy's going to be a star. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a tendency now with Freddie Adu that, oh, he didn't make it. Therefore, we think present tense that all those people who said he could be that good must, must be idiots. When the fact of the matter is, is that not all phenoms make it. And it doesn't mean that the people who saw them and might be respected and have thought he could have made it, that they're just bad at their jobs or dumb. Right. It's like when you play, you know, basketball at the rec center in, at your college and going, wait, how isn't that guy in the NBA? Like, there's always like the one guy on every soccer field and every basketball court. Like, that guy should have been a professional. And you'd like wonder what are the reasons why uh, they didn't make it. Uh, the, the last thing I'll ask you about is um, the international influence on this story. You mentioned how, you know, there's a scene where at 12 years old, Inter Milan are calling, offering hundreds of thousands of dollars when negotiating with MLS. There's also offers from abroad. And then I thought the most interesting uh, bit was you mentioned a story in which uh, Manchester United uh, bring a bunch of Americans over and Alex Ferguson is asking for Freddie Adu's phone number. Like, like that's such a wild scene. Can you put us there? Yeah. So in 2003, I was part of a small group of U.S. journalists that uh, Man United had signed with Nike and we got invited to spend some time uh, at Manchester United. And it was an incredible time to be there because they had a Champions League game, which became a famous Champions League game against Real Madrid with all the Galacticos that Ronaldo, OG Ronaldo had a hat trick, got a standing ovation from the Old Trafford fans wow. coming off in the game. David Beckham was about to be sold to Real Madrid. Things had broken down between him and Sir Alex Ferguson. So he didn't start, but then he came on and scored twice. And it's just an epic game because you had Zidane, Figo, Ronaldo, like Beckham, all of these guys involved. And, and Real Madrid ends up advancing. And then the day before that, they set up these interviews. I got to interview Sir Alex Ferguson one-on-one -on -one the day before this giant game against Real Madrid. And like it wasn't me who he asked for Freddie Adu's phone number. It was a friend of mine named Josh Dean, who's a magazine writer, who told me about it. And I think I had Freddie's number at that point because I'd written a story. And so I gave it to Josh, who gave it to the Man United people. <laughs> <laughs> and it shows you that like, they were aware of Freddie Adu. They wanted to establish contact. And eventually he does, as a couple of years later, I think, he does spend some time with Man United. Whether it was an actual trial or not, I think is up for some debate. But, um, you know, it doesn't end up sticking uh, with Man United. But, like, if Sir Alex Ferguson, at the height of his powers, wanted Freddie Adu's phone number, that should give you an idea just of how mm -hmm. the legend of Freddie Adu had spread. And you kind of wonder, you know, like the, the legitimacy of all these things, right? Because so many years later and we've seen, and look, like even by, he still became a professional footballer. He still played in Europe. Like he had some, I, I remember there was moments, particularly the 2011 Gold Cup when it's like, all right, maybe there's a career rebound on for this guy. But like the fact that these massive clubs at such a young age had spotted as you, you know, correctly dub him a prodigy, uh, kind of backs the credibility of, no, this wasn't just Nike made hype. Like this is a legitimate player who in another world could have had a world-class career. Yeah. And I just, you know, for Freddie's sake, wish he, you know, would have done some things himself and mm -hmm. would have had 
maybe a bit more uh, shrewd decisions made by some adults and and might have given him more of a chance to become what we thought he could become. Uh, you know, this is still a guy who scored a hat trick in the under-17 World Cup and the under-20 World Cup, was the first player ever to do that, who made around $8 million in his career. And so, like, to say it's a complete failure, I think would... I get it, but I mm-hmm. like in terms of expectations, but part of this storyline is the episode's... Uh, will continue to come is like, is Freddie really a sad story? Because the people around him and Freddie himself, who's not bitter, don't think he's a sad story. And I agree with that assessment just because look, anyone who goes from, I mean, how many MLS academies right now think that their best academy player is due for a 10 year career and they don't even make it as professionals, right? Like there, there are so many, and I, I've heard um the, the guardian do like this list every year of like, Basically, they have a bunch of scouts domestically and all over the world. It's like, you know, looking for the next gems, right? And every year, they kind of follow up five years on from when a player is like 15, 16. Where are they now? And like 20% of them are out of the sport. Like, they're, like they don't even get to that level. So, yeah, I mean, to go from being a young man in America to playing club football in Europe is not insignificant, right? And I know, you know, a lot of players have gone on to do it, but I mean, it's still a relatively small number. So, yeah, by the specter of your average human, he is, he had an incredible footballing career. But again, when you compare it, as you said, once you start the expectations with Pele, then, of course, of course, the, the next step is, is, is a disappointment. Almost even, even if he became like, I don't know, if he had Clint Dempsey's career, if you compare right. him to Pele, like, he's still a disappointment. <laughs> it's crazy when you think about it. I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on future episodes, but but thanks for spending some time with me on this one. If anyone wants to listen to it, it's American Prodigy, Freddie Adu, wherever you get your podcasts. I want to ask you about U.S. men's national team. We finally got to see them play really for the first time since... Like I guess they played in February, but that wasn't the full team. First FIFA date they had games on in a year because of the virus. What for you will be some of the takeaways out of this? My primary takeaway is it's a bit bigger. It's probably a bit too big and too global. But I remember when Jurgen Klinsmann was brought in and the whole conversation on Jurgen Klinsmann was that a coach would change the style of the U.S. national team, right? That all they needed to find was, you know, whether it was Marcelo Bielsa, Jurgen Klinsmann, some attacking manager that, with his ideas, could imprint upon the American game whatever the next evolution was. But now, with the clarity of hindsight, you realize that it's the quality of the players that dictate that, right? That you upgrade your style with quality of players. And so even in the nil-nil against Wales, you just see things that you're not terribly accustomed to Americans doing on the field. And so it is about having Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams and Serginho Dest and, and uh, Gio Reyna play at all these massive clubs and, and just a raising of the level. So Greg Berhalter, yes, he wants to implement some of those ideas, but they don't fall at the feet of the players who can't execute them. And so the evolution, I think, of what we wanted out of the American game is reliant upon these players and more players like them following them up. So uh, I was immensely encouraged by patterns of play, by the ideas from a passing standpoint that we saw. Yeah, there are weaknesses, but just on a global basis, 
you saw the American game take a massive step forward over two games because you see, oh, this is what having real quality and European-based quality is all about, and hopefully we'll see that honed and developed. Yeah, you'd like to see them get some time together to build more chemistry, but you could see sort of at least the individual stuff in the Wales game. You know, obviously, you could from an attacking perspective against a subpar Panama team, but... I was pretty encouraged by that. It was fun as much as anything just to finally see these young U.S. guys out on the field, especially from an attack perspective. Like, the two goals given up against Panama, not great from a defensive perspective. And I do think, I do think sadly for Matt Miazga, (laughs) that this was an opportunity for him to play a lot of minutes. And he didn't, he was like the one player, I think, whose stock might have fallen quite a bit. Yeah, and I would also, if, if I were to add another one, it would probably be Anthony Robinson from the first game. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're trying to make that work at the left-back position. He's playing at Fulham, and you know he's in England, so you're thinking, all right, he's going to kick on and, and have a, a good game. But I do think he's probably like a bad fit with the rest of the team, as things stand. Like You see like he picks up the ball, and he's like hard-charging forward. And like, I don't know, I, the rest of the team seems a bit more deliberate, uh, other than Weston McKinney, who just plays with his hair on fire. But but I, I, th- I think Robinson's probably like the one player who didn't fit very well, and be curious to see if he can develop uh you know so you have sam vines you have you know Sergio des you can flip over to left back there are other options at that left back position but yeah uh miazga and just in general i think john brooks had a good performance but he's mm-hmm. not at the age where you're like thinking he'll grow at this generation he's probably got a cycle and a half uh left to go and so you want to see chris richards you probably wanted to see a bit more of him mm-hmm. uh given that you know he played 20 minutes he's with Bayern munich like put him in at that right center back spot and see if he can crack it but yeah, I would say probably Miazga and Robbins would be the two where you'd have a little bit of, eh, I, don't, I don't know if they're going to be part of the long-term future. Yeah, and obviously part of me wants to see Christian Pulisic of course. get some time with these guys and stay healthy for a while. Uh, he did spend a, a little bit of time with the team. You know, and like the other aspect I've noticed talking to these guys, both on the record and, and off the record sometimes, is they like each other. They like being able to meet up and spend some time with each other because a lot of these friendships actually go back several years to when they're playing on youth youth national teams for the u.s and so just seeing that excitement from them on their instagram stories things like that weston mckinney to me appears to have improved not that he was bad but like i think he has taken his game to something of a new level already at juventus And I think a lot of it has to do with role definition, right? Because with Schalke, it really was just run around in circles. Like the tactics under previous management were, you know, very minimal. Like it was just, you know, the Bundesliga is up and down, very transitional. You're pressing, you're getting after teams. And I think McKinney kind of took a similar approach with the U.S. And I think as well, you know, having... Not placing Tyler Adams in, in in the center of midfield as well, whether it's Will Trapp or Jackson Ewell or whichever distributor Greg Berhalter wanted in there, also kind of required McKinney to do more running for the U.S. And so now that you put Adams in there, you define, all right, you're going to be in front of Adams. We want you to press and we want you to kind of, you know, close down side to side. But you're ultimately in that number eight position. And it's the same thing with Juventus, right? Because, you know, very tactical league and Andre Pirlo clearly, and, and I've read this as well, and Matteo Benetti mentioned on the podcast that Weston McKinney has been told, uh, given specific instructions. I think that specificity has clearly led to a jump in level because once you kind of dedicate all that energy into one place, then 
it seems like it's really paid off from a technical standpoint. Like there are moments where he's carrying the ball out of trouble, kind of flicking the ball around and doing things like, wow, I've not seen Weston McKinney, you know, try those things. So he just carries himself with like I, I saw an increase in the confidence that he carried himself with, never mind kind of the tactical reasons why I think he's he's come along so quickly in the space of a couple of months at Juventus. Was he doing stepovers at one point? I think he was, yeah. Well, I I definitely know Sergino Dest is definitely doing stepovers and snakes and trying to meg defenders. Like, that guy's got some sauce, Sergino Dest, from right back. Which is fantastic. Um, I also wanted to ask you about Eunice Musa, who Mm. uh, plays for Valencia, 17 years old. He turns 18 later this month. And got a lot of minutes and had some really encouraging moments in in a central position, which is slightly different from what he does at Valencia. Here's a player who is eligible to play for four countries. He's played for England at youth level, but he's also eligible for Ghana. He's also eligible for Italy, born in New York City. Really interesting story. And he seemed to have a really big smile on his face when they took the picture of the starting 11 against Wales, I guess all you can hope is that he chooses the U.S. when he when he has to make a decision. Yeah, I mean, the next competitive game that you lock him in would be in May. So you kind of wonder in the intervening period what the those other FAs will have in store for Yunus Musa. I, and look, for me, the reason why the U.S. has had, if they've had any advantage in these recruiting battles, is playing time, right? It's like, hey, we think you can play in our full national team now. And I think those two performances for Musa kind of dictate that, you know, in a full-strength squad, Musa would play. And so if you compare it, for example, to England, where if you're playing him in a central midfield position, you know, you have Mason Mount in that area, Phil Foden, Declan Rice, Harry Winks. There's those. And if you play him in his club position at Valencia, down the right, it's Jaden Sancho, Marcus Rashford, Raheem Sterling, Jack Grealish are in those wing positions. I mean, it's spoiled for riches, England. So... And you go on down the line, Italy, you know, maybe Ghana uh, has has something to say. But, you know, the U.S.'s advantage has always been that ability to play. And and you mentioned as well kind of that feeling in the camp. And you wonder as well if guys like McKinney and Adams and the the, the leaders of the group were making Musa feel part of the group and wanting and and, and kind of engendering that feeling of him wanting to come back. So definitely immensely encouraging. And the U.S. is actually, as much as sometimes U.S. soccer gets some criticism, they've done pretty well in some of these recruiting battles. So uh, I I would back them to, to, to at least have a chance here and retain this player. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. From what I understand, he will sign a new contract with Valencia soon when he turns 18. So very exciting for him. And I think it's neat to see, you know, America's U.S. men's national team fans have gone through a lot in recent years. And so I'm going to let them be excited here. Uh, and, and they should be good stuff. Well, thanks so much for joining me. Always good to talk to you, Chris. Thanks, Grant. This episode is brought to you by a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action in Spain's La Liga and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch the top leagues from France, Portugal, Brazil, and Argentina. Plus, Fanatis has the Copa Libertadores with some terrific round of 16 matchups starting soon. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports in English and Spanish, Gold TV, and many more. And it only costs $7.99 a month. 
If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or by going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. Now, here's my interview with Kate Abdo. Our guest now is my old friend and work teammate, Kate Abdo, the studio host for CBS Sports UEFA Champions League coverage on CBS All Access. Kate, thanks for coming on the show. How are you? Always good to see you. I'm great. Thank you. I'm good. I want the listeners to know before we get going here that when you came on the Zoom, you were you were still taped from, I think, a boxing workout. What, what's going on here? I have my hands wrapped. Yeah, I was... Um... I was I I'm in London right now. I'm in quarantine, and so I I wrap up my hands and I just do a boxing workout. I I bought a heavy bag to go in the in the apartment in London, um, just because it's total lockdown in London. So the the last trip that I was here, we actually had the gyms were open. And I could work out, and it's just kind of a balancer for me. Um, and I I miss it when I don't have it. So I just wanted to make sure I've got something I can do in the in the apartment. Nice, I like it. So Champions League group stage and all six match days are taking place over just eight weeks this season because of the scheduling situation in general. You have a two-week break right now for the international window. Now, you live in Los Angeles, but your CBS studio is in London. You're in London right now. How are you negotiating all that with all the lockdowns and everything? With a lot of frustration. Um, (laughs) I think... You know, like anybody, it's it it's tough when your when your routine and your lifestyle is so impacted, right? And uh, kind of we all have the different things that make us feel sane and and make us feel good in a day. And I I feel like when you're dealing with a quarantine and a lockdown, and at the moment the UK is is totally locked down, so a lot stricter than the the restrictions back home in the US. There's just an element of of wanting to be able to do more of feeling like we've been in this situation for a long time already at at the same time I'm also I'm aware that I lost two jobs because of COVID and I was very nervous about you know my financial situation and the home that I had just bought and and all of those things you know for a, a good number of months so I'm also extremely grateful to have the opportunity to work to have the opportunity to to earn a paycheck and more than that to do a, a job on a show that I'm really enjoying and that I actually, I also feel, I I feel like it's a soccer show we can be proud of, which is really exciting to me Um, because it's not something I think I've always felt. You know, I think there's lots of different things that come together when you're trying to start a new soccer show and there's lots of different issues to negotiate and to actually feel that even though we're we're really new in this, we're we're doing a, a good job. There's still room for improvement, but we're doing a really good job and that's exciting to me. I mean, you and I have talked over the years about the American soccer market and television viewers here and building the sport of soccer here and what might work and what might not. And I mean, I'll tell you, I'm really enjoying CBS's coverage so far of the Champions League. You've done it with Fox Sports. You've done it with Turner. You're now with CBS. How have you guys tried to go about presenting Champions League at CBS during these, these first few months? 
I think one thing that's exciting to me is that I think we've really tried to cater to the soccer fan. And as a soccer fan, that's something I enjoy because that's the kind of coverage I want to watch. Um, at the same time, I feel like the fact that it's led by um, Pete Radovich at CBS, who has, you know, that great balance of having a real European kind of background and understanding the game and the European game, which is obviously important when you're talking about the Champions League. Um, but married that with his understanding of of and his reputation in American television. Um, I feel like we've really kind of managed to, to, to find that balance between creating a show that actually feels like a fun show to watch. You know, being back in the UK, I'm kind of struck sometimes when I watch the television over here by how different it is and actually how now that I'm so used to, to an American broadcast, how slow it can feel, how kind of one dimensional at times, how static, how uncreative sometimes. And I, I love that about American television that I feel like they're always trying to find new ways to have a conversation, not just feel content with the same old format that we've been doing for the last however many years. And I, I feel like that's something that we, we've really managed to find a, a blend of and I personally have really enjoyed because it it's felt like a meaty show with conversations with you know Roberto's tactical genius breakdowns which I kind of sometimes I find myself zoning out I just start listening to him and I'm kind of I'm so intrigued by what he's saying um and it has that element for me but it also has the kind of the fun element where we're joking around and we're all having fun and that's really genuine too and I love that You've got some big personalities in that studio. You mentioned Roberto Martinez, Jamie Carragher, Alex Scott, Michael Richards, Peter Schmeichel occasionally, others. What have you learned about each one of them so far? So let's start with Roberto. Roberto is such a gentleman. I have so much time for him. I just think he's wonderful. You know, hearing him, I, I think he has he's kind of a natural born coach and I see him as in, in many senses as the leader, the man who kind of sets the tone on set. Um, I love to to watch how he interacts with everybody. I think you learn so much about somebody, not just how they interact with the rest of the talent, the rest of the other big name footballers that are around, but but everybody who has a role to play in a TV production. And I love the way he does that. Um, you know, you'll find him occasionally giving relationship advice or this or that and it's just it's he's a great person he's a he's a really good guy and I, I really love that he is so you know he has a very important job in, in world football he he has a, a high profile but when he comes to CBS he has done hours of research and pulled together you know this element that he'd like to talk about and he's got exact time codes from exact games of, of which footage he wants and to have somebody who has that much responsibility outside of the studio but still comes to the studio with all of that on board and really just ready to kind of add to the show and bring another level of content is is fascinating to me it's very cool one of my favorite roberto stories i had a chapter on him in my book was that his wife's not a soccer fan but they arrange their sofa in an l-shaped and have two they have two television screens, at least they used to in their living room, so that he could watch soccer facing one way and she could watch the show she wanted. <laughs> Which is very Roberto. Um, I love that though. But that's just him, right? It's that he he values family family, he values relationship, and he understands how to create a real balance in his life, even though he has, you know, so many different responsibilities. Jamie Carragher, what have you learned about him? <laughs> uh, watch out for his for his mouth he's very quick um 
I, I love his sense of humor. I love the way that he, you know, he's very quick witted. He'll have a very quick put, put, put down for, for anybody, for Micah, for Peter, for whoever is his victim that day. Not with Roberto, mind you. I feel like there's a level of respect there that he won't go for Roberto. Um, but I think he just, you know, even you, you've, I'm sure you've seen he's written this new book about, uh, you know, the the greatest games and he loves a tactical breakdown as well. And I think that's why he has this kind of real level of respect for Roberto because they can have these conversations and it's probably rare for him to find somebody who is as, uh, you know, as studious of the game and as studious of the breakdown and the tactics and how things work. And I think that's... Um, you know, it, it sounds silly, but it's not always a given with an analyst of a football game. You know, you have a lot of people working on TV who don't go deep into the to the kind of the workings of the game, um, who will give you a much broader picture. And I love the fact that he has that sense of humor. He's willing to laugh at himself as well, which is important. He'll take it, it as, as much as he gives it. And um, at the same time, he can function on that kind of deep tactical level. Alex Scott. Alex Scott is, you know, I really, I had never worked with her before and I kind of really fell in love with the energy that she brought to the show when she was with Peter Schmeichel over in Lisbon. Um, I thought they were really great together because Peter's just a different energy. He's a totally different type of person. Um, you're always dealing with a bit of a delay. You know, English isn't his first language anyway. So, I, you know, I think sometimes it's harder for him to come back quite as quickly, but I thought that she kind of lifts a room. She has a, a, a Mike Richards type effect. She lifts the room that she's in. Um, and I think that's very cool. And obviously as a female, I have a lot of respect for for her personally. I think that, you know, obviously in the game, but also in television, because I feel like particularly in the UK, she has pushed a lot of barriers and she has not had an easy time because of that. I feel like she's taken a lot of stick. Um, I do feel like Europe is somewhat behind America in terms of their acceptance of female analysts and their acceptance of a, a woman's ability to talk about the game, which in 2020 is disappointing. But um, she's one of those people that has really broken through and taken her place at the table because she deserves it. And, and I have huge respect for that. Micah Richards. Micah's one of my favorites. Um, there are certain people that have that, you know, I think there's a lot of skills in broadcasting that you can learn. You can learn how to do your research. You can learn how to best communicate. You can't learn to have an infectious laugh, a great smile and just a, a big personality. And I'm not reducing him to those things. I think he brings a lot more to the table. It's, it's, it's wonderful, you know, from our perspective to have somebody who's so current and who can talk to, to situations in, in the modern game. I know Jamie's still pretty current, but Micah more so, um, and, and more connected with the current players, I think. But he just has a, a warmth, and there is nobody who is better at taking stick and laugh. You know, if you try to make fun of anybody the way that we make fun of Micah, I, I feel like most people would eventually get pissy about that, and Micah just doesn't. He's so good-natured. He enjoys a good laugh. He's willing to be the butt of the joke. He he adds another an ele another element for us, for sure. Now, I don't think you can fake chemistry on television. And I sense is it's kind of your job to to help with that chemistry. And, and it seems like from watching this, you guys have done a good job with that early on. And I'm wondering, what do you do in your role to try and promote that? Or is that something you can't just say, I'm going to do this. It just kind of has to happen. 
It's funny, isn't it? Because like, if I think back to Turner Champions League, I was with Stu, Mo, and Tim, who I consider all of them to be good friends now. Um, and I, I feel like off camera we had fantastic chemistry. I don't know if it always translated on camera, but I think that off camera I felt like I was just I was just spending my days with with three of my really good friends. Um, you know, I think that with this job, everybody is kind of more we're just we're arriving in and and doing the studio show it's a different time covid is a very different time we can't go out for group dinners we can't do anything social there's there's none of that team bonding that i maybe had with Stu mo tim with us all staying in the same hotel hanging out going out for dinners all of that stuff getting on flights back together everything um so covid definitely makes it more difficult to build a rapport somehow i do think it really naturally has just existed i think it's probably helped that, you know, Micah and Jamie work together in, in different scenarios in the UK. Roberto is a, a known face on UK television. There, There is a sense of it kind of being a group of people that, other than me, who have kind of worked together and known each other. Um, I think as the host, you're right. It's kind of your job to try and sense the personalities and sense what will what will work. How do you get the best out of a a Jamie or a Micah, how far can you go with a Roberto? Are there certain jokes that he'll find funny or, is, you know, is there a limit to that? I, and I think you have to try and balance that. Um, but I think it has, in some ways, it's just been, it's just been fortune. It's just kind of worked. And I, I don't know if I could put my finger on why. I, I mean, I, I do think you have to give real credit to CBS in that, actually, because I think that they really studied who they wanted to have on set. I think that was one thing we struggled with at, at Turner at the very beginning is that we, we still weren't sure, sure when we launched who our group was. And we kind of, you remember, we changed people yeah. in and out as we went. I think the fact that CBS had such little time to get ready, picked up this major product super last minute at a point where I certainly never expected them to do the August tournament. I just thought, no, that's, that's too much of a stretch. For them to do that and actually have their team in place by the time we did that was ridiculous to me I don't know how they did it but I think they really earmarked this is what this person brings to the table they looked at, at creating that balance and it's it's played out I think for them it seems to me like you also have more time for a pre-game show and post-game than than Fox and Turner used to have what do you try and do with that well this is the thing isn't it like I'm I'm so traditional in some ways that I love it when things are just on broadcast television. I like to be able to turn on my TV and not have to go through an app and all of that. I'm I'm kind of old in that sense. <laughs> At the same time I do really value the fact that when we do a post game on CBS All Access there is no off time. There is no we got to get off. We can't finish this conversation. We got to move on. We got to get to a break. It's it's so much more casual than that and so much more free than that. Obviously there are still you know, commercial boxes you have to tick, but we can pretty much wrap up the show when we want. So if we, we're still going on something and it's good t content, I love the fact that we can go longer. Um, I think to me, it's been exciting to see the amount of buildup that CBS want to do, because I think it kind of speaks to how much you care about a product how much you think it's it's worth, you know, is it worth putting an hour's studio around it? Because it's easy, it's not easy, but it's easier to just put a game on and, you know, have the commentators take you to it or whatever. And that would be an easy solution for, for example, the earlier games when there's the two kickoff times and kind of just keep everybody fresh for one game. 
but we've been searching for solutions of well how do you kind of do a pregame for that and for that and and I just love the fact that we're giving time to it. That's exciting to me. If you want to have some fun with Roberto Martinez, by the way, have you guys shown the the viral video that someone shot of him dancing at a rock concert when he was the Everton manager from a few years ago? Because if you just want to... <laughs> no, but you know I'm going to Google that after this. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, let's see what else we have here. Uh, you have this talent that is pretty incredible that you're able to do live simultaneous interpretation of interviews in Spanish, French, and German. And I've had lots of people ask me, where did Kate get these outrageous language skills? And I'm wondering if you could share the story. Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I didn't really realize I could do that until they kind of said, and that's one thing I like about Pete is that he's daring and he doesn't kind of, He's happy for things to fail, but he'd rather have tried them than, you know, than, than not have tried them at all. And so I, I know that there was a conversation that went on in the production room where they realized they had some sound from, I can't remember who it was the first time that we did it. And they said, oh, but it's only in, you know, it's only in Spanish. We can't do it. And they, he's, Pete said, well, put it on. She'll, she'll just translate it. And they said, well, she's not heard it. What if it goes wrong? What if she can't understand? And then he said, well... We'll all have a good laugh at her that she says she's fluent in Spanish and actually she can't do it. So he was like, what we got to lose? And from then on, it's just kind of become, oh, oh well, here we go. This is a way of, of getting good t content into the show in real time. And it, it's worked. Um, it's not always easy because with production, you have other voices in your head. You're trying to dial into this voice and you're dealing with different accents and, you know, different styles of speaking. And it, it's just a lot. And you're trying to talk at the same time. It's a lot to do at once. Sometimes I feel a little bit fried after a long post game. Um, but I think just the language skills just came from at school. It was probably really the only thing I really felt I achieved in. I wasn't a bad student across the board, but it was the one area I really felt like this is something I can excel in. And I, I had a sense that I had a travel bug, but I didn't really, I think I didn't really know that it was a travel bug. So I, I remember saying to my parents when I was 17 and I was just wrapping up high school and I said, you know, I, I think I'm going to move to Spain for a year and learn Spanish because I had never been able to learn Spanish at school. And they said, don't be silly. Um, I think that just felt, you know, my parents have never left Manchester, the city that we grew up in. And I think that that to them just felt a bit weird. Why, what? You would move to Spain? No, of course you wouldn't. And I said, no, no, really, I want to organize this. Um, and they said, but you have a place. At, I, I, I got a place at a college in Birmingham. Um, so I was going to go study languages in Birmingham. And I said, I know, but I, I can delay that for a year. Let me just go do this. This is exciting to me. Um, so my plan was to, to go to Spain, study Spanish, and then go to college and do Italian and, and French. And I went to Spain and, you know, I, I'd grown up in Manchester. Where it rains all the time. It's gray. And I, I went to the south, like the south coast of Spain. And I was like, wow, <laughs> this is a different lifestyle. And I just thought, I'm not sure I really want to leave this. So I, I lived with a family just to make sure I did that kind of like full immersion experience. I went to a Spanish classes. I uh, got a job and like, you know, a bar and then a cafe and then a, an internet cafe, which is ridiculous if you know how bad I am with technology. Um, and I just, I, I just kind of jobbed my way around until I eventually decided, okay, I'm going to stay here for college. Actually, I don't want to go back. And I did, uh, I did the high school diploma in Spanish the same one that the Spanish kids do so that I could get into college, did college. And then they, I kind of thought, well, gosh, I don't really want to study. So maybe languages again is the thing to do. So 
I took French, English, Spanish, but I needed one more. You had to do another language, and the choice was German or Russian. So I was like, ooh, I think German sounds easier. And that was why I ended up doing that. And um, and then I think I just, if you study languages, you do get the sense, I'm sure you've found this, that sometimes it's hard to learn from a book. And you think you can speak it because, you know, you do your practice and you think you know words and then you actually speak to somebody live and you realize, wow, this is a whole different tempo. I wasn't expecting this. And I just thought, I need to go there. I need to go and live in these places for a year and just really figure it out. And so... Again, I made a decision that I think my parents thought was a bad one at the time. And I decided to just kind of put a pause on my studies. So in Spain, the way d degrees work at, at the universities, you can just kind of pause it and go away for a year and then come back to it. And so I went away and I did, um, I was in Munich for, I think it was eight months or something, in Paris for another eight and just kind of worked in Paris. I worked in Zara. I worked in a photography marketing store I worked in a cafe the same kind of thing Germany I worked in the equivalent of Starbucks but you know there were just jobs where I I spoke to people all the time I engaged with people and I and you just learned to talk the one thing I have found is that I obviously didn't talk in depth about football enough and sometimes I'm lacking that kind of really hmm. football specific vocabulary even though football was always part of my life in those countries I think I just I didn't get into in-depth conversations those are the conversations I would have with my dad or with my brother or my mom actually who's a huge Liverpool fan but probably not with the people I was hanging around there so that's that's the one area I kind of need to work on and um I set myself the goal of Italian I want to add Italian to the list I was between Italian and Portuguese and CBS said well we think Italian would be nicer so let's go with that one <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, it's interesting. You say your family's been in Manchester forever. Mm. Like you have this, you've had this very international existence personally uh, of living in different countries in Europe, living in Los Angeles. Uh, I think you were in Atlanta for a while. Um, how, how do they feel about this, that you're this sort of international citizen when that's not what they've been about? I'm not sure that they always relate to it um, just because they're, they're very aware. I mean, they're just, a, we're aware we're different. We're aware that my mom doesn't really like to travel. She hates to fly. And I'm kind of the opposite of that. Um, I think there's a sadness for them for sure. If I'm really honest that I'm, I'm far away, we're really close. Um, and as great as FaceTime is, there's nothing like personal contact. Right. And so I, I think there's an element of sadness. And I think that actually the CBS job, that's been one of the real blessings of it is that it's given me that ability to say, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll come by, I'll pop by with COVID. It's been more difficult, but I know that, you know, over the next, the rest of this year, hopefully it's going to get easier and easier to just jump on a train and, and kind of be closer. And I think the fact that I'm on their time zone makes them feel more excited about that somehow. Um, I, I think... You know, it's, you, it's just always important to respect other people's mentalities, right? And I have a real respect for how they live. It's not, it's not the life I would choose, but I love the value that they put on certain things. I love that they are, you know, if you live in LA, I feel like it's, there's a lot of surreal stuff that goes on in LA, right? And you can choose to buy into that lifestyle or you can choose to kind of create your own world. And I kind of feel like that regular contact with you know, my family in Manchester, my dad, who's proud of the fact that he's worn the same shoes for the last 20 years. And, you know, he just keeps changing out the shoelaces. And I, I love that about him because I have been blessed in certain ways with travel and different locations and, 
you know, high profile jobs. And it's been a real blessing to have them that I just, I go back to Manchester and it's the most normal city in the world. And I, I feel really at home there. I love it. I do remember you telling me that in August you were able to to see your parents briefly when they were celebrating their anniversary, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, uh, their 50th wedding anniversary. It was very nice. cool. You've lived in the U.S. for a while now. In what ways do you think you've become more American? Apparently my accent. I get a lot of stick for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't hear it, but people, people do think I'm pretentious and I try and sound like an American, according to Twitter anyways. Um <laughs> Honestly, I think that's just kind of a byproduct of the languages. I think one of the reasons I, I can deal with multiple languages is I just have an ear, I guess, and I pick up things around me. And I, I guess the same happens with an accent. Um, I Do you know what? I realized how American I feel or how Americanized I feel when I when I was away for the elections and I really struggled with that, actually. I felt disappointed and I, it was... So it was the Tuesday night, wasn't it? And... Um, Obviously, the Champions League is Tuesday, Wednesday, so usually I get back late Tuesday night from the studio UK time, and it's a short night before I then get up early on the Wednesday, so I try and be disciplined and make sure I get, you know, five hours or so when I get back home. And I just, I wanted to have CNN on, I wanted to feel like I was part of it. I I, it, I kept saying to myself, there won't be a result, like, you're, you're not waiting for anything, you're not going to miss right. anything. Right. And I was traveling back to the US like two days later. But at the same time, I just felt like this feels like part of the uh, part of the culture that I live in, part of something that I'm hugely invested in, that I pray and hope for better in. And I, I kind of just wanted to be part of that experience. I, I missed not being with my fiance and watching that and kind of feeling a renewed sense of hope together, you know? And I, so I guess that kind of drove home to me how much I, I love this country. And, you know, even when, say, when I lost the two jobs back in March because of COVID, I think my parents thought, well, maybe she'll come back to the UK, you know, maybe this will be the time. And it just wasn't really a consideration for me. I've, this feels like home for me. And I say that even though, you know, my, my fiance lives in New York, I'm in LA, like we haven't got that kind of communal base just yet. We're working on it, but it still feels like home. That's cool. I'm glad to hear that. We've seen you cover some other sports besides soccer, like boxing. Is there any chance we'll see you doing any work in boxing or other sports in the near future? Yes. Um, I recorded a Zoom show uh, a few days ago, actually. Um, so I'm definitely going to be doing boxing. You know, I think boxing was a sport that Fox had chosen to invest in, but that wasn't obviously, you know, top of the pile when you've got NFL and baseball and, and other sports that do much bigger numbers. So I think that um, they've been doing kind of they've been doing their shows, but they've been doing it on a lesser scale when it comes to pay-per-views and bigger fights and stuff like that. The plan is for me to be involved again, which I'm, I'm super excited about. I was I wasn't actually involved in the regular fights week to week anyway, um, because we did those with a much smaller crew. I was only involved in the pay-per-view fights. So in that sense, nothing has really changed. It's just that we used to do a lot of subsidiary programming, which has been cut since COVID just as. Fox are trying to A, save on budget and B, not create shows where a bunch of people have to be in the same studio altogether. So um, different times, but that actually meant a lot to me to feel like I, I still have that kind of one foot in the door because boxing is a real passion of mine. And I, I feel really disappointed to feel like I wasn't involved in it at all anymore. Just to wrap up here, we have a lot of students who listen to this show who are interested sort of in how you get to do what you're doing. What sort of advice do you have 
for students who who want to do what you do? It's funny. I did a um like a college. Uh, I had a, an old colleague from CNN back from when I had had worked at CNN. He was at CNN en Español, and he had reached out to me on Twitter. We'd never actually met. I we just know we were both at CNN at the same time. And he's now a prof. He's retired from broadcasting, and he's a professor at a college teaching broadcast journalism. And he'd asked me if I would do a like a class for the kids. He was, you know, COVID setting up different ways of learning. Everybody's on Zoom, and he was just getting different speakers in to speak to them. And I said, well, I really don't. I don't know that I can give anybody who wants to do what I do any good advice because I don't feel that I had a traditional journey or a journey that anybody else can follow. And he said it, it doesn't matter. He said most of these kids don't really know exactly what they want to do. They just kind of think they want to be in media, but they don't know what the plan is or the route is. He said it's kind of good to, you know, for that for them to hear from somebody who doesn't say, "Well, I was super focused from day one, and this is how I ended up where I was." And I, I gave the class. I said to him, "Is it going to be a Q and A? Because that makes me a lot more comfortable." He said, "No, no, no. You just take the class. You just talk to them about whatever you want." I was totally intimidated, and I was like, "Okay." Um, so I did that and I realized that whilst I don't, I can't say, well, I think it's really important that you study journalism and I think it's really important that you take internships doing X, Y, Z. You know, I don't really know what the best route is. Um, my fiance's daughter is actually interested in being in media and, um, she did an internship at Fox. She's not really sure that college is what she wants to do. And, you know, it's, I've been trying to weigh up because I think traditionally you can often just come at things with that mentality of, well, you should, you should have a qualification. At the same time, I, I've always seen a lot of people working at the different networks I work at that have worked their way through different routes and actually have a much broader sense of practical experience and understanding than other people who've learned it at college. So I think there's real benefits on both sides. And I don't know that there's a specific best route. I think that the one thing I kind of like dialed in on when I was giving that class was how important I, I think it is to kind of to set a goal and to figure out your way towards it. And that can be a, you know, a short term, a small goal, like just the next step. But the one thing I think that and I think this is partly as well because of, of, of being female and you kind of constantly feeling that pressure that you have to over overperform to be considered for something because you just assume that the man next to you will be more readily accepted in sports. Um, so for me, it's just kind of like that incessant over prep and feeling like I'm ready for a situation and feeling like I, I'm that kind of person that takes confidence from planning and preparation anyway. It gives me that kind of sense that if I go on air and if everything falls to pieces, which it can do on live TV, then I'm good anyway because I have my talking points. I know I've got some stats. I've got this, I've got that. And so I think... For me, it's just kind of having that clarity of what's the next place I want to get to and always kind of mapping out your little routes, just little steps towards that rather than thinking, well, I want to have a show on Fox, you know, okay, well, that that's further down the down the show. But let me figure out where do I start here and what can I do? Um, so for me, that's as simple as like I was working as a translator interning in um in Deutsche Welle, it's called a German TV station, which was like my first internship after graduating college. And I was put on the business desk, which I was just useless at. I mean, my maths is bad. My business understanding is bad. Zero understanding of stocks and shares. It was a bad fit. And I, I kept kind of thinking, well, I don't really know what I want to do, but I know I'm good at sports. So 
please can I transfer to there and it was just constant kind of waiting until and pushing till I could get that transfer to move on to that desk and then from there the next step and it's just kind of those small little things but always looking at I think it's really important to think about what you're passionate about I think so many people look at TV and think that it's kind of it's all about the being on TV part and it's not you know the bit about my job that gives me the most pleasure is that that I spend my time studying stuff that I care about it's hard to do all the prep and do all the reading like the stuff you do for a book right i mean i can't imagine how much research you do but if you didn't care about football it would drive you crazy and and that's the thing i feel like you're always trying to assume more information but you can only do that if you genuinely care Kate Abdo is the studio host for CBS Sports UEFA Champions League coverage on CBS All Access. Kate, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Kate Abdo as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.